My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. If you look at a lot of entrepreneurs or a lot of really successful people in life, most of the wealthy people have been the people that have come from nothing because they've got that drive inside them to want a better life. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with renovation queen, Cherie Baba. The author of Renovating for Profit will share her journey from the bottom to the top, discuss why renovating is the perfect job for multitasking mums and how she accidentally discovered the power of renovating after spending the Saturday nights of her 20s painting her kitchen walls. My name is Cherie Barber. Um, I'm from a company called Renovating for Profit. I'm commonly known as Australia's Renovation Queen um, and I basically educate people all over Australia how to do cosmetic and structural renovations where the aim is to make a profit. A given day for Barber begins at 4am and is packed from start to finish, demonstrating that you can really do it all. My day normally begins at 4am. I try to go for a run. Um, I normally sneak in about an hour of emails, uh, so literally from about 5 to 6 um, emails and then most days I actually have a makeup artist at my house doing my hair and makeup for television. Um, that'll normally get done by about 6.30, then I'm travelling to site. Um, I'm normally on site most mornings at 7 or 7.30. And then from 7 till 3 o'clock or 7 a.m. to about 2.30, I'm on site renovating. I normally leave site about 2.30 so I can pick up my daughter at 3.10 from the school gate. Then I normally ferry her around in the afternoon to her activities get home, make dinner, and then I pass out about 8.30. Yeah, that's a pretty typical day. And obviously during the day, I do my TV filming and be a TV presenter. So yeah, it's a very full day. But you know, some days some days on the weekends, um, I don't do any of that. And uh, you normally find me at you know numerous airports on the weekends doing public speaking gigs. She also explains this early start to her day. So it always helps if you are on site at that time. But I have a really good team, and they can quite often get the site um, started for the day. If I, you know, if there's something on where I have to take my daughter to school, um, 
I, they'll they'll open the site for me, get it underway, and then I can just come in. So that's the great thing about renovating. It's a perfect job for mums who are juggling kids and all sorts of stuff. You are definitely a super mum, especially with what you do. That's awesome. And are you concurrently running multiple projects at one time usually? Is that what happens? Yeah, I'm always working on at least three or four projects at a time. So I'll normally have one renovation in progress at any point in time. Um, I don't like to overlap projects. So what I do is I do single projects at a time, but I do fast renovations. So typically I'll renovate a whole house inside and out in eight to 10 days. And you don't want to be doing that juggling in other projects. So even though I have other projects in progress, just from a planning perspective, I don't physically do any more than one at a time. However, I have been known to do six. um, I think my worst one ever was six at a time. And that was a bit chaotic. Most people um, get stressed doing one renovation in their lifetime. Yeah, so when you got six on the go at the same time, it's, yeah, bedlam and it's not what I recommend most people to do. Just stay focused on the project at hand, do it, do it well, get it done and then move on to your next one. If you can do that, you'll remain sane and you'll stay married too. Growing up in Sydney, Barbara's family went through a period of struggle. I actually grew up in Sydney's western suburbs. So I grew up in a suburb called Kingswood, which is just near Penrith. So yes, I'm, I'm officially a Westie, but I'm very proud of it. Um, no shame in that. Four children in my family. I'm the oldest and obviously my mum and dad. My dad was a um, earth mover and all through the 70s. I was born in 1970. I'm going to tell you that anyway, because believe it or not, it's the most Googled thing on me on the internet. People just want to know how old I am. And second most Googled thing is Sheree Barber married. So for anybody listening, no, I'm not. (laughs) Stop Googling. Um, But I'm very close. (laughs) So um, yeah, so I um, born into a very um, average Aussie Butler family. Um, We certainly never went overseas. Our holidays were Budgie Caravan Park, and that was about it. And they were fun times. And my mum was a stay-at-home mum, so she raised us four children. She, They got my parents got married pretty young when they were 20 um, and had kids straight after. So um, sorry, they were married at 19. I was born at 20. She was a stay-at-home mum, which is very common to what a lot of women did back in the 1970s. Um, but then what happened was an event happened in my family um, in 1985 that sort of turned my family's world upside down. And I won't go into all the gory details, but um, my parents got divorced the following year as a result of that. So my mum was suddenly single, you know, four dependent children, and uh, she applied for every single job and nobody would give her a job because she had no career history. You know, obviously people don't, um, a lot of organisations, companies just back then didn't value somebody who raised children. So, and she was pretty much, you know, didn't have a terrible amount of skills um, from an office perspective or anything like that. So she struggled to get a job. And so what she did is she somehow managed to go to the bank and get a a $30,000 loan to buy a shop. So she thought, okay, if I can't get a job, I'm just going to go and um, create my own income through owning a business. And unfortunately, that business didn't go very well. So she bought the shop and it just didn't, it didn't even cover the rent. So in all truthfulness, she dug herself into a bigger financial grave. Her mother then attempted to sell the shop to cut her losses, but nobody wanted it. What happened was she started applying for jobs again and she managed to get a job in a nursing home, just um, emptying bedpans and lifting older people into beds, just a very laborious sort of job. I had just started year 11. I was the youngest kid in the class um, in year 11. 
And I literally came home from school one day. I'd only, I was only a couple of weeks into year 11 when my mum said to me, I've got to rip you out of school. You've got to go run the shop. She tried to sell it but couldn't sell the shop. And I said, what? And she said, you've got to go run the shop until the shop is sold. And I said, how long is that going to take? And she said, as long as it takes. I don't know. So at the time I was um, – I, I was around this early 16 marks. I was either late 15s or early 16s. I don't recall exactly. And um, so she ripped me out of school and I went and sat, um, had to do a four-hour commute every single day as a, let's just call it 16, as an early 16-year-old, had to do a four-hour commute there and back um, on public transport every day. I sat all day in a shop that made no money and then I closed the shop home and I did that um, six days a week. I did that for two years and I got paid $60 for two years' work because that's all I, my mother could afford to pay me. After several years, her mother managed to sell the shop. However, the experience has stayed with Barbara to this day. You know, she, she, I sat in that shop for two years and then she sold the shop. So, it was two years that she sold the shop. She sold the shop for a loss so she walked away with the financial debt from that as well. And then about um, a couple of weeks after my mum sold the shop, I got a phone call from the hospital saying, you need to come up. Your mother's actually had a nervous breakdown. And that was quite a terrible thing to witness that. And at the time, you know, my mum sort of become addicted to certain things and it wasn't a good time. It wasn't a good time for her. It wasn't a good time for myself. But I look back on that experience and I think even though it was terrible for me at the time, I actually look back and I think it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because at a very young age, I was running a small business, even though it was a failure of a business. It taught me the the meaning of hard work. It taught me the meaning of how hard it is actually to make a dollar. And what it most importantly told me is that even though I love my mother dearly, I didn't ever want to be like my mother and struggle financially. I never wanted to be that person. And so what I did is I, I literally walked out of that experience. I actually, when the shop was, shop was sold, I went back and I thought, okay, I'll finish my education. I'll re-enroll back in year 11 because that got taken away from me at late 15s, early 16s, whatever the age was that it was. I said, I can't recall that exactly. And um, I went back. I re-enrolled in, in the same school. I was now the oldest kid in the class and I lasted six weeks. I just matured beyond my belief that I couldn't readjust back to the classroom environment. So I went out and got a job. Through adversity, Barbara has come to realize the impact her personal story can have on those who have been in similar situations. I very rarely talk about my personal life and it's something that, um, so, you know, somebody, you know, about a year ago actually, somebody put something on my Facebook page that said, oh, it's so easy for you to make money because you come from a wealthy family and I just, I actually got quite offended at that comment of the, on the time and I thought, oh my God, it's so further from the truth. We had no money and the wealth that I've created, I've earned every single dollar of it with my own hands by not being the smartest girl on the planet, just by working incredibly hard. So what happened was, you know, so recently I've started to talk about my personal life because I think a lot of people are in my situation. A lot of people don't come from a wealthy background. They weren't born with a silver spoon in their mouth. You know, they weren't raised in families that had all the years and graces and the best education. That's not representative of the average Australian. So. I started to share my story in the hope that it does actually inspire people who maybe came from terrible childhoods or not so great upbringings that it doesn't define who you are as an individual. Quite often, if you look at a lot of entrepreneurs or a lot of really successful people in life, most of the wealthy people have been the people that have come from nothing. 
because they've got that drive inside them to want a better life. The motivation to get a job stemmed from more of a primal need to survive than to succeed. However, she would eventually make her way through the ranks to become a senior product manager. Back then, I, I wasn't brought up in a wealth creation sort of mindset family. My, my family mentality was more one of survival. Um, and so I didn't get brought up with, with any form of um, knowledge about wealth creation or I, there was a lot of things there I didn't learn in my childhood and, and the same for my siblings and you know some of my siblings weren't so lucky. They didn't you know, turn out, um, you know, they didn't scathe um, that sort of environment very well. So um, I just sort of, I, I walked out, you know, by the time the shop was sold and all of that happened, I was about 18, sort of 18 years old, 18 turning 19 and I just thought, okay, I've got to go get a job. That was my mentality back then. So I went and applied for a job at 3M Australia and this company was really great. Um, I actually attribute this company to, to part of my success um, because 3M is a great company. It's a big global international company. Um, you know, for the people that are listening, you know, who may not know have heard of 3M, you know, they make all the Scotch products, post-it notes, 40,000 products worldwide. So they're a huge company. And I started in customer service, just answering phones, um, you know, product inquiries just on the phone, a very junior job. And I'd spend the next decade of my life there um, and, and I just progressed through the ranks, sort of went from customer service coordinator to marketing assistant to marketing coordinator, junior product manager. And I ended up, by the time I left 3M, I was a senior product manager. Um, but this company was really powerful because they invested heavily in staff. And I needed that. I needed an education because I felt like at school I didn't really, I really hadn't got any sort of. I went to, I went to year ten in effect. Um, I'd only just started year eleven when my schooling ended. At this company, Barbara absorbed all the information she could and acquired many of the skills she now also uses in her current career. And so what happened was um, they really invested heavily in staff training. So they taught me about business plans, strategic planning, checklists, templates, systems all things that would become absolutely vital um, vital things in my career as a renovator that I didn't know back then by default. So I stayed there for 10 years. Coming up after the break, we'll delve into how Barbara started out in property. We bought our very first property together at age 21. And I thought that was a really good thing for a girl out west who really sort of had come from a um, quite reasonably sort of Aussie battler background, I thought I was doing well. Where she went from there and what she did to succeed? Any spare time I had off, I wasn't in a nightclub. I was painting walls on a Saturday night or we just did that and we added, you know, a bit of value to the property. And that's next. I'm Tyron Shum and you're listening to Property Story. So, when did Barbara first venture down the property path? I joined 3M when I was about 19. I was there from 19 to 29. At the same time, I also had met, I was with my boyfriend. I was with him for about 11 years. And at the time, you know, we were pretty serious about each other. We weren't married, we were very, still very young. And he sort of came from an area that wasn't too dissimilar to mine and a similar background. And, you know, we were crazy in love and um, we thought, okay, we're going to buy a house together. We're going to save and buy a house. 
So what I did, um, he wanted to do that, I wanted to do that at a young age and we weren't thinking buy 20 houses back then, we were just thinking buy one house that we can live in forever, happily ever after. You know, we'll probably get married and this will be our forever home, we're quite naive. So I went and got a second job at a leagues club and I worked at that second job for eight years. Um, just a local leagues club and you know, some nights I'd work in the keno desk, some nights I'd work in the bar. You know, it's just a, sort of like a bit of a goat club gopher sort of job. And that's how I got my deposit to buy my very first property. Um, we went halves. So my first property deal was a, um, a joint, like a co-ownership. My boyfriend went halves. I went halves. We weren't married, so we weren't sharing money at the time. Um, so he saved up his money. I saved up mine. And that's how we bought our very first property together at age 21. And I thought that was a really good thing for a girl out west who really sort of had come from a um, quite reasonably sort of Aussie battler background, I thought I was doing well. After purchasing this first property, she realized that I had made a big mistake. I bought my first property at 21. What happened was we bought this property and we bought the first property on a six-lane highway. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. So, we didn't do any due diligence because I didn't even know what that meant back then. Um, so, this was in 1991. We bought our first property as I said, it was born in 1970. So, um, the property and as soon as we moved in, I just went, oh my goodness, what have we done? It was, this house was so noisy, like from all the cars and tr freight trucks zooming past. It was one of those houses there where you just think a runaway truck's going to come slamming in your front, like through your front window at any moment. And I just said, we've got to get out. Like this is horrible. We've got to get out. So what we did is we embarked on a quick cosmetic, um, a quick cleanup actually. You can't even call it a renovation. It was just a cleanup. Um, it was um, it largely just we bought some paint and we painted the inside of the house ourselves. We just lightened it all up because when we bought the house, it was heritage colours. It was like, you know, fuchsia green wall, um, fuchsia plum colour walls and heritage green. And, you know, it was quite a dark house inside. So we just bought some paint and we lightened and brightened everything up. We did it ourselves because we never had any money to hire any tradies. Our bank account, literally by the time we bought the house, it had a couple of dollars left over because we scraped together every dollar to buy the property in the first place. Um, and we just ripped up the grungy carpets. We didn't polish the floorboards, even though the floorboards needed a polishing. We had no money to hire floor sanders. And we largely went on a rampage with a set of garden clippers and a lawnmower and we cleaned up the unruly front and backyard. And that just it just made the property a little bit more presentable and we put the property back on the market straight away. Oh, and doing well with renovating and then selling this property, Barbara and her partner then decide to choose another property and invest all their spare time into renovating. Now, we weren't looking at making a profit. We were getting out of this property purely to get ourselves out of a bad decision. And we were hoping that we could cover all our costs and, and not lose any money. And we did exactly that. We covered all our costs, you know, our initial costs that we had to outlay, our stamp duty, our legals, our mortgage. And we sold it and we made a very small, modest profit. It was only like $2,000. But we didn't lose money as 21-year-olds. I turned from 21 to 22 in the process and we sold the house. I was 22. And what we did is we actually went and bought another property and we thought, okay, we stuffed up that first year, that first property. Let's go buy in the same suburb in a quieter street. So we went and bought in the same suburb this time, an unrenovated property in the quiet street. And then we literally just would spend the next next eight years of our lives renovating that house inch by inch, room by room, 
Um, you know, when I wasn't working my full-time job and I wasn't working my five to seven shifts a week at the Legs Club, any spare time I had off, I wasn't in a nightclub. I was painting walls on a Saturday night or we just did that and we added, you know, a bit of value to the property and again, we weren't professional renovators. None of that was even in our mind back then. We were just renovating this home to create a beautiful home that we were going to live in forever. But despite all her efforts, she had a completely different opinion on the intended forever home. I look back on that renovation now and I think it was so disgusting on so many levels. Like the way we renovated it back then was terrible because we just didn't know. We were winging our way through the process. We're just like a lot of people, we just don't know. You don't get taught renovating at school. And I look back now, I actually found some photos of that property, an old box that I had, and I was really happy to find the photos. But I look back on the photos now, like we installed like just the worst kitchen ever that we got incredibly ripped off at the time. That property, when we installed the kitchen was in 1996 and we paid $15,000 for this kitchen in 1996, which I just look back on that now and think, gosh, we got so incredibly ripped off. You know, the layout was fundamentally flawed. The colours were all wrong. We hired a painting team to paint the external colours that now just send shivers down my spine. So we're just clueless like a lot of people. The accidental renovator. Barbara says she never thought to make money through property or any other type of investments. It just happened that way. I do a lot of media interviews each week with the Australian press and one of the common questions that people ask, as you've just done myself, as you've done yourself, is um, how do I get started in renovating? And I always call myself the accidental renovator. I never woke up one day and went, I'm going to become a renovator today. I never went to a seminar and went, you know what, I'm going to become a renovator. I fell into renovating by accident. In all truthfulness, that first property, when I sold it and I made that small profit, that was my first taste at making money a different way outside of a traditional job. And I sort of went, oh, that's all right. You know, that was sort of nice. I didn't lose money. Let's go buy another unrenovated house. So even though I wasn't still thinking, okay, be a professional renovator, I thought, okay, well, maybe I can just buy something unrenovated and add a little bit of value to it. So yeah, I fell into renovating by buying a totally dud My first property deal, total dud. So after eight years of renovating her principal place of residence, when did she decide to turn it into a wealth creation strategy? On that second project, like I said, we were living, um, we were renovating that to create our forever home. And then we actually ended up breaking up when I was 29. Oh, no. We're still actually great mates today, but we just grew apart. Like we were together, you know, quite young and we were together for a whole decade. That's a long time when you're in your 20s to be with somebody for, you know, 11 or 12 years. That's actually a long time. And we just naturally grew apart, but we're still like really good mates today. So we actually um, decided to split very amicably and um, we put the house up for sale. So we sold the house, you know, fairly quickly. And um, the bank got paid back the mortgage and then we split whatever was left over after the settlement proceeds, we split 50-50 down the middle. And so just to give you some perspective of where I was sitting financially, that was the only house that we had owned. We didn't own any other property. So when we sold it, we had no property. And when we split the money 50-50 down the middle, I was age 29 and I had 175000 in my bank account. That was my net wealth. So I felt that even though I hadn't made a huge amount of money, I think that people should put things into perspective. 175000 isn't anything to be sniffed at either. You know, a lot of people go their whole lives and they don't have five or $10,000 to show for their name. So 
even though it wasn't like millions, I felt like I was heading the right way, like renovating, like, you know, painting houses and doing the gardens and all that sort of basic cosmetic stuff. I felt like I was heading in the right direction financially, sort of never to be broke like my like I saw my mother. I saw what lack of money did to my mother and I just knew I never wanted to be like that. So I felt like I was heading in the right direction. Within the next year, she met someone who was as interested in property as her and she became motivated to take on renovating more seriously. So then what happened was I turned, I was single, I turned 30. I actually met my next partner. I spent the next 13 years of my life with him. So I'm very much a long-term relationship girl. Um, I've only really had sort of two long relationships in my life. I met him and he was quite interested in property as well. And what we did is we, um, we well, mainly myself, um, I thought, okay, I'm going to actually give this renovating thing quite a serious crack now, you know, because I, I felt like I'd made good money, bump, but with, you know, um, if, with what I'd done in the past, those two properties all through my 20s. So when I turned 30, um, this is really the beginning of my professional career. I spent three months doing it. I chose a suburb in Sydney and I researched everything. I, I call it my intensive due diligence period. It's a three-month intensive due diligence period. And I've researched everything, um, the suburb, the demographics, the suburb attributes, the historical you know, capital growth, the, the future capital growth, the demographics, the housing types. I researched, I went to all the open for inspections, I went to the attended auctions, I found out who the best real estate agents were, who the best auctioneers were, and I was preparing myself for me, um, I was doing all of this in preparation for me buying my next property that I was now going to do a lot more strategically, not winging it. Uh, with my partner Steve, uh, we ended up buying this uh, little house in uh, Roselle, which is about you know, 6Ks out from Sydney CBD, it's an inner city suburb. And we ended up buying this property for 537000 It was, you know, a house that was had good bones, it was structurally fine, it was perfectly livable, but it was just cosmetically tired. And what we did is we got in and did a eight-week renovation. So we both still had our full-time jobs. And how uh, we managed this is we, we, you know, we popped on site of an evening to make sure all the tradies were doing what they were supposed to be doing. Not all of them did what they were supposed to be doing. And Barbara certainly had some road bumps along the way in relation to the tradies who worked on site. One of them was painters where we came to site one night and we discovered that the painters had failed to wash the house um, externally. They'd failed to wash the house externally prior to painting. So there were cobwebs under the paint. There were bits of grit and dirt under the paint. That you, you, know, you sort of run your finger over the, your hands over the weatherboard and you could feel the clumps of dirt. We sacked the painters on that project and bit of rework so it wasn't all smooth sailing but it was nothing catastrophic either nothing that couldn't be fixed it was just a little bit of rework my due diligence told me that you know I could comfortably resell this house for 800,000 so my total project costs on that project I bought it for we bought it for 537 and um, we outlaid in total just a tad under 150 so that was stamp duty legals reno costs resale cost um, we did the, that project as our principal place of residence it was totally tax-free we were hoping and praying that we um, could sell it for 800000 because that's what my due diligence told me should be a comfortable target for that. So we were thinking, okay, the project owes us six ninety. If we can make a hundred grand quick profit while we're holding down our full-time job, while we've got that income still coming in, we thought that was like a bloody great result. 
So we took it to auction. Our life was very unbalanced during that eight weeks. You know, this was prior to us having our daughter together. We were working really hard. Um, life was unbalanced. It is what it is. Um, if you want to get ahead, quite often your life will need to be unbalanced in some respect. You can't have your cake and, and eat it as well. But her aha moment didn't happen until the property finally sold at auction. We took that property to auction as soon as the renovation was finished and the auction hammer went down at, um, we were hoping for eight, and it went down at 955000 So we ended up walking away with a $268,000 clear net profit margin, totally tax-free. And when that auction hammer went down, it was my sliding doors moment that I just went, oh my gosh, what, what are we doing? You know, I, I, I saw that money that we made. It was like winning the first division of Lotto. We threw ourselves into renovating and I've never looked back. So fast forward 18 years and I've now personally completed 110 projects. Gosh. And would you still consider that to be your aha moment? 100% without a question. You know, I was, I was a very conscientious worker working um, at 3M and, you know, the jobs, the office jobs. I've only ever had two office jobs, 3M, and I moved across to L'Oreal. And, you know, so my last time I was actually in full-time employment was back in the year 2000. So when that auction hammer went down, I quit my job a couple of weeks later and I just threw myself in. And I hate to say it because it sounds so cliché but it's absolutely 100% the truth. Out of the 110 renovations she has undertaken through her property career, Barbara has been lucky to never have a negative experience. But she has still learned a great deal through making minor mistakes. I guess what was beneficial for me is that very early on, I sort of, um, you know, that project that I did, that project number three, where I did it a lot more strategically, I call that my first professional project. And I did that very strategically, like I really put in the time to research everything on that. And luckily, I was able to to learn what I learned on that project. I was able to roll that into future projects. And so for me, the process actually became easier and easier, not harder and harder. I can honestly say there's been no project that I've actually found extremely difficult. I've never lost any money on a property But what I have lost, I've lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in mistakes. I haven't found the actual renovation of properties hard. It's the mistakes. It was things like paying too much for stuff, getting ripped off by tradies, paying too much for stuff, shopping, um, you know, buying the wrong fixtures and fittings, shopping in the wrong shops, paying too much for stuff. So, inspired by Barbara's journey and her worst investing moment, we'll keep the conversation going in a future episode of Property Investory, where we'll talk about how to apply her strategy for renovation. So, what I did is I transitioned out of structurals and I moved 100% solely into cosmetic renovations where A, I can buy the properties at a lot lower price. The personal habits that have contributed to her success. My biggest thing, I think, is that I just worked hard. You know, people say work smarter, not harder. I agree with that, but I was the person that worked hard. I've worked incredibly hard over the last 28 you know, years. And that's next time in a future episode of Property Investory. 
My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tapiphone. 